Good evening, welcome. We're in James 3 and we're looking at the just two verses, that's verses 1 and 2. If you have a Bible, perhaps you could turn with me to James chapter 3 and I'll read verses 1 and 2. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. That's it, just two verses. In James 3, the attention is almost wholly focused on the issue of our speech. What does our speech say about us spiritually? And I want you to see that James's message is not only for preachers and teachers or those who aspire to be preachers or teachers, but his message is for us all. I want you to see five things that James teaches us in just, five, in just two verses. Number one, why does James even raise the issue of speech? Number two, why James says what he says about teachers of the faith? And the point three, what you need to realise about teachers of the faith that will impact your prayers for them. Fourthly, the significance of an enormously important passing remark that James makes at the beginning of verse 2. And fifthly and finally, the importance of self-mastery over the tongue. So the first point is, why is Christian speech important? Verse 1 not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Why does James follow up a section on faith and works by talking about speech? By going on to talk about our tongue, James reminds us that our works are not only limited to our actions, but they include our words, our speech. In fact, our words, our speech are among our most important works. If works in James's book re refers to loving action or obedience, then you see words are a reflection, are and words are excuse me, words are a reflection of that true Christian love. And so his follow up to chapter two, verses 14 to 26 on faith and works, it is perfectly natural to talk about our words. But there is an even clearer reason for the logic of James's handling the issue of speech. In James one, verses 26 to 27, if you remember, James lists three hallmarks of a truly Christian man or woman. The first is in verse 26 of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The second hallmark is verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And the third hallmark is to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then James preoccupies the rest of the letter with those three things, those three hallmarks of what it means to be a Christian. Now, he's taken already theme two first, which is in verse 27 of chapter one. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit 
orphans and widows in their affliction. You see, he talks about that in chapter two. The first part of chapter two is not showing favoritism towards those who are needy and poor in the congregation. And then the second part of chapter two gives the practical illustration of not saying to our brother who is in need in a time of distress, be warm and be filled and then doing absolutely diddly squat about it, but actually helping that brother who is in need. You see, so James has already dealt with the second of those hallmarks first. But when he gets to chapter three, he goes back to the first of the three tests of true religion, which is the bridle, the bridling of the tongue. And then he will spend the rest of the book from the end of chapter three on dealing with worldliness, which is the third of those three tests. So just a very brief summary, those three hallmarks of what it means to live out the Christian faith is your tongue, which James deals with in chapter three, Secondly, how we deal, deal with those who are in need, that we've covered that in chapter two. And then the rest of the book, James deals with worldliness. So the logic of James dealing with the tongue is clear. James, in addressing this issue, is again taking it from Jesus, his older brother, because Jesus talked about this too. Matthew 15, verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, it defiles a person. James is applying the truth of Jesus to us because our speech is one of the best indications of the state of our heart. So let me ask you a question. What does your speech say about the state of your heart? Is there inappropriate anger in your speech? Is there profanity or coarseness in your speech? Is there worldliness in your speech? Is your speech devoid of the grace of God? Is your speech devoid of the things of the gospel? Do you mislead people? Do you gossip? Are you inappropriately critical? Are you disrespectful in your speech? James is saying that sinful speech patterns in professing Christians need to be taken as a serious sign of a need for grace. He's also saying that sinful speech patterns may well be a marker of whether you need the grace of Jesus for salvation. What does your speech say about you? And this is the introduction to what James is going to do in chapter 3. There are four other things that I want you to see in these two verses. The second is in the first part of verse one. If the general subject is speech, you may ask, why does James start with teachers? Because teachers of the faith bear important duties. Their words are important. They can be used for good or for ill. And teachers of the faith are vocationally susceptible to sins of speech. And because many who aspire to be teachers stumble and become stumbling blocks in what they teach, teachers of the faith and those who would be are beset both with special responsibilities and special dangers when it comes to the use of their tongue. 
You see, James's statement in verse one is really stunning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And James is saying again what Jesus said in Matthew 23 and verse eight. But you're not called, but you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Why did Jesus say that to his disciples? He's going to commission them to teach the nation. So why should they not desire to be called teachers? Because in Jesus' day, to be a rabbi, to be a teacher was honoured in Israel. Now, it is not that way in the world today. But in Jesus' day, there was a desire to have that public esteem from the people who were religious. They were conservative and their culture had religion woven throughout it. And those who were teachers of religion were respected. And James is, is echoing that same sentiment here. The words of teachers leave an indelible mark, either for good or for evil. They can strengthen the weak and mature the faithful. Or they can become a stumbling block for the young and the immature, the baby Christian. Men who appoint themselves as teachers without confirmation from the people often leave the pe often leave the people of God astray. Some of them apostatize, some of them are hypocritical, some of them teach error. It's a dangerous profession. It is beset with special responsibilities and dangers. And frankly, James's injunction here shows us why the church confirms a man's ministry and calling. No one appoints himself to the office of teacher or elder. He, they make themselves available for sure, but the people of God see the calling of God on that person's life. Not so long ago, a friend was telling me of another friend who had decided that all the churches were wrong, so he was going to start his own, and he planned to go to the mission field, self-appointed. That man will go astray. The third point from these, th the third of my five points from two verses is teachers will incur a stricter judgment. It's a sobering thing. What do you need to know about teachers? You need to know that they will incur a stricter judgment. James is saying here that teachers of the faith are under divine scrutiny and they will be judged here and hereafter by higher standards. James just flatly says here that teachers of the faith will be held by God to higher standards. He is, of course, you know, referring to their teaching, but this can be more broadly applied. And Jesus's practice shows this, how, how patient Jesus was with erring members of what we might call the church in his day. He was very patient with confused lay people. But have you ever Notice how Jesus dealt with people who set themselves up as spiritual leaders. Do you remember how he dealt with the R.C. Sproul of Israel, Nicodemus? John 3 verse 10, Jesus answered Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. You remember how Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. Matthew 23 verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, are, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
Jesus has no time for teachers who lead the people of God astray. And James is echoing that here in James 3 verse 1. You know, it blows my mind sometimes the kinds of teachers that intelligent, competent Christians will sometimes have a great regard for when they're teaching absolute babble and foolishness. And yet somehow intelligent, competent Christians follow them. The passage is pressing us to be discerning in which teachers we listen to. But first and foremost, James verse one is showing us the higher standards whereby teachers will be judged both here and hereafter. It is to protect the people of God. My fourth point, all Christians are subject to failure. We're not perfect. Verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. Now, I know that James is setting, is saying that sentence to set us up for something he wants to say in the next sentence. I understand that. And we're going to get there. That will be my next point. But it is an amazing passing statement. In that statement, James debunks perfectionism. What is the significance of that passing remark about stumbling? It shows you that no believer is perfect. No believer is without sin. I say this and, you know, I say it slowly because I think it's so important. Perfection is not the goal of the Christian life in this age. Maturity is. One day we will stand before him perfect, faultless, blameless, with exceeding joy, but not now. Our goal here is not perfection, it is maturity. And James' acknowledgement, James's acknowledgement in the first sentence of this verse is huge and vital. We all stumble, we all sin, we all fail. That is the statement of a mature Christian. And it's the statement of a Christian leader in the early church that was universally acknowledged at that time to be the most rigorous in his practice of holiness and separation from the world, James. Friends, those who teach that we can attain a point in this life when we are free from sin are contradicting scripture. They are grossly erring. They are among the teachers that will incur judgment. Maturity is our goal, not perfection in this life. Friends, we must be utterly realistic about the expectation of the Christian life and the Christian lives of others also. I'm always finding Christians who come in disappointed about the behaviour of other Christians in the church. And we are disappointed from time to time. And immaturity and stupidness and division. But my friends, it would be a heresy for us to expect the church on earth to be perfect. Because Jesus said she would not be. We have to be realistic, not only about our own need for ongoing repentance and growth and grace. But for others' need, others' need of ongoing repentance and growth in grace. And James is teaching us here that perfection is not the goal of the church in this age, maturity is. So that's that little passing statement. And then my fifth and final point of two verses is mastery of the tongue will enable us to master our lives. And if anyone um, does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Why is self-mastery of the tongue so important? If you can control it, you can control anything. James is saying that the Christian maturity is reflected in the self-control of our speech. 
and and self-control of our speech bodes well for the self-control of the rest of ourselves. Paul is trying to explain to people that they are sinners and he's meeting resistance. Where does Paul go? Romans 3 verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Speech. And if speech tips us off to our sin, it is not surprising that a keen mark of the reign of grace in our lives is our speech. If we can control it, we can bring every thought captive to Christ. James is saying that the control of the tongue leads to a master control over our lives and ourselves. Now that reality presses two ways on us. For Christians who are struggling in this area, the very realisation that you're struggling is revealing to you a deep need for the mortification of the flesh by the Holy Spirit. It will mean immersing yourself in the word of God so that your mind is taken captive to Christ. It will mean being dependent on the work of God's grace in you so that you can grow in grace. It means that you strive against sin. But the second, but for others, the message is revealing to you that you do not know Christ, that you have never been united to him for salvation by faith. And if your speech tips you off, your speech can tip you off that you are a person without true religion in your heart. But there is good news. The saviour who gave speech to the dumb can clean the speech of the wicked. And if you trust him, alone, trust in Christ alone for your salvation as he is offered to you in the gospel. He will touch your lips and make them clean, just as he did Isaiah's. He touched his lips and made them clean. May God bless the word for his glory and our eternal good. And may you be encouraged. God bless.